Good morning. Today we begin our worship by singing hymn number three, Lord Jesus Christ, be present now, hymn number three. sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our health is in the name of the Lord. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. sinner, confess unto thee all my sins and iniquities, 
with which I have ever offended thee, and justly deserve thy temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them, and sincerely repent of them. And I pray thee of thy boundless mercy, and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you. And in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. For our psalm today, we use the first portion of Psalm 119, uh, that portion which begins with the Hebrew letter Aleph, and we read it responsibly uh, with the congregation reading those verses in bold type. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies, and that seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity, they walk in his ways. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Thus shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. I will praise thee with uprightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgments. I will keep thy statutes, O forsake me not.
Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who art always more ready to hear than we to pray, and art wont to give more than either we desire or deserve, pour down upon us the abundance of thy mercy, forgiving us those things whereof our conscience is afraid, and giving us those good things which we are not worthy to ask, but through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. You may be seated. For our catechism lesson today, we continue looking at the office of the keys and we look at two questions today. The first, why then is this power called the office of the keys? Because by the remission of sins, heaven is opened, and by the retention of sins, heaven is closed. Whose sins are to be remitted and whose sins are to be retained? The sins of penitent sinners, that is, of those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ are to be remitted. The sins of the impenitent are to be retained as long as they do not repent. In the book of Acts in chapter three, we read, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, seeing that forgiveness comes with repentance. Psalm 51 verse 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Acts 16 verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And so we see that the sins of those who repent and look to Christ and his cross for mercy and forgiveness are to be forgiven. The sins of those who remain impenitent, who persist in their evil ways or do not trust in Christ are to be retained. We have examples in Bible history here of the penitential Psalms, also the publican and uh, the Pharisee, which we will read here in a few minutes, and of the prodigal son and also of Peter, examples of those who are forgiven or not forgiven if they are not penitent. Our epistle lesson for today, we continue in the book of Hebrews in chapter six, verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself saying, surely blessing, I will bless thee and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, 
both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham, and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed by the better. And here men that did receive tithe, or that die, receive tithes. But there he receiveth them, of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made a, of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing of an in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth, for, continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, 
who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. Here ends our reading of the epistle. I ask you to please rise for the reading of the Holy Gospel. gospel appointed for today is recorded in St. Luke's gospel in chapter 18, beginning at the ninth verse. And he, referring to Jesus, and he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. After And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Here ends our reading of the Holy Gospel. Today, we confess our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed, found on page 12 in your hymnal. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. You may be seated. We continue by singing hymn 220, Jesus, my great high priest. Thank you. 
your hymnal, I draw your attention to the words of the first verse where it says, Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died, my guilty conscience, no sacrifice beside, his powerful blood did once atone, and now it pleads before the throne. I ask you to bow your heads and join me in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we again pray your Holy Spirit's blessing upon the speaking and the hearing of your word this day, that we might be built up in the true faith and hold fast to the atoning sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of all our sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The text which we consider today is a portion of our epistle lesson from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 28, where we read, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. If we thought the book of Romans is a little bit wordy this morning in Bible class, certainly when you read the book of Hebrews, it gets kind of deep. You have to really take time and look carefully at what is being said. And in our epistle lesson today, we heard how the Aaronic priests were appointed and served during their lifetime, or the Levitical priests served during their lifetime. But there is another priest who by the oath of God is made high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so since in the Bible there's no genealogical record of Melchizedek, he has no beginning, no end. 
He is not a part of the family of Abraham, and yet he's in that way he serves as priest of the Most High God forever, and Abraham paid tithes to him of all the spoils. And through Abraham, since Isaac, Jacob, and Levi were still, at least figuratively speaking, in his loins, through Abraham, even Levi, who is the father of the line of priests for Israel, paid tribute to a greater priest, Melchizedek. And Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so, as it says in our text, he's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. And I emphasize the word once. I don't wish to relish or rejoice in the sins of other church bodies which are unfaithful to the word of God. But sometimes it's helpful to look at the false teachings of other church churches in order to understand the truth of God's word. If you recall, when we were studying the Augsburg Confession, there was an accusation made against the church's in the German lands who followed Luther that they had rejected the mass. And they argued firmly that no, they have retained the mass. They've even made it better. Today, I'm going to read to you some things from Roman Catholic theology, which might make you even wonder, at least it did me, how could Luther rescue the mass out of this mess? When you see what the Roman Catholic church had done with the mass, how could he rescue it from that and make it a service of worship and praise to God in which God serves us and provides us with the promise of forgiveness and life through word and sacrament? I'm going to read to you from, first of all, the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. And this is not an ancient book because it was recopyrighted just in 2016, so only six years ago. So it's a, a recent book. In paragraph 1364, it says, in the New Testament, the memorial, he's talking about here the, the mass, the memorial takes on new meaning. When the church celebrates the Eucharist, Eucharist is re a reference to Thanksgiving, uh, is a name for the Lord's Supper, she commemorates Christ's Passover and has made present the sacrifice Christ offered once for all on the cross remains ever present. As often as the sacrifice of the cross by which Christ, our Pasch, has been sacrificed is celebrated on the altar, the work of our redemption is carried out. Now, you may not understand that unless you look deeply at what he's saying or what the catechism is saying. They are saying that in their celebration of the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, they are bringing down Christ's body to the altar and re-sacrificing it in order that God's continued work of redemption is being carried out. 
And I can't read to you all of this because, you know, this is the biggest part of Roman Catholic, uh, the Council of Trent, and I think even of the Catechism, uh, dwells so much on this. But the Roman Catholic Church teaches that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, what Jesus was doing when he instituted the Lord's Supper was not just instituting the Lord's Supper, but he was also making his apostles priests who would then through apostolic succession appoint other priests to continue to offer this sacrifice of Christ's body and blood on the altar for the remission of sins. In paragraph 1367, the Catechism quotes from the Council of Trent. And some people say, well, Council of Trent, that's 1500s. However, it is still very much the doctrine of the Roman church today. It says the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priest who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. And since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated at the mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and offered in an unbloody manner. This sacrifice is truly propitiatory, meaning it satisfies God's wrath against sin. And so what they're saying is a sacrifice that Jesus once made on the cross is now brought, it's contained in the hosts, and it's offered on the altar as a propitiatory sacrifice for sins. Paragraph 1370 says, to the offering of Christ are, are untied, should be united, not only the members still here on earth, but also those already in the glory of heaven. In communion with and commemorating the Blessed Virgin Mary and all the saints, the church offers the Eucharistic sacrifice and in the Eucharist, the church is, as it were, at the foot of the cross with Mary, united with the offering and intercession of Christ. And so the Eucharist is connected with their worship and honoring of the saints, including Mary. In fact, there is a quote, which I'll be coming to, which they point out that the work of the priest is even greater than the work of Mary. Paragraph 1371, the Eucharistic sacrifice is also offered for the faithful departed who have died in Christ, but are not yet wholly purified so that they may be enter into the light and peace of Christ. And so in other words, they're saying that the Roman mass in the Roman mass, the body and blood of Jesus are being sacrificed in order to cleanse or purify those who have died in the faith but are not entirely purified. And so this is offered to propitiate God's wrath. It reminds me of, you know, the words, the words of uh, Tetzel when he sold indulgences, you know, when the coin uh, springs, I can't remember the exact words, uh, uh, the soul from purgatory springs, you know, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul in pur from purgatory springs. It says in paragraph 1376 that the Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring, because our Redeemer said that it was truly his body that he was offering 
onto the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God and his whole, this Holy Council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church is fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. In other words, the substance has changed. Perhaps to better understand this, if you know a little bit about Aristotle and talking about substance and accidents, it might be a little easier to understand where the Roman church is coming from from this, saying that the substance has changed, but basically the appearance has not changed. And so it looks like bread and wine, but it's not bread and wine anymore. It's just the body and blood of Christ. Paragraph 1378 in the Catechism, Worship of the Eucharist. In the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by, among other ways, genuflecting or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. The Catholic Church has always offered and still offers to the sacrament of the Eucharist the cult of adoration, not only during the Mass, but also outside of it, reserving the consecrated host with the utmost care, exposing them to the solemn veneration of the faithful and carrying them in, in procession. And so the host, which is consecrated, is put in a ark or a box where people can venerate it and worship, thinking that they are worshiping Christ, his body and blood. It can also be carried around in what is called a Corpus Christi procession or body of Christ procession in which people worship the host. They worship actually bread and wine made by man as if it is the actual body of Jesus being carried around in a procession. John O'Brien, who is a Roman Catholic priest, uh, has written a book called The Faith of Millions, The Credentials of the Catholic Religion. And he writes, when the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, this is the mass. He reaches up into heavens, into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a power exercised by the priests greater than that of saints and angels, greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. Indeed, it is a power greater even than the power of the Virgin Mary. While the Blessed Virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man, not once but a thousand times. So the priest is, does a greater work than Mary because Mary gave birth to the Son of God. Uh, the incarnation took place through her, but through the work of the priest, Christ is brought down from heaven thousands, probably millions of times because it's every time it happens, which is every day in the Roman church, and there are churches all over the world, that the priests bring down the body of Christ and offer him again as a sacrifice to God. 
when it speaks about veneration, uh, one thing that I read that I thought was kind of interesting, it says you can always tell the sincerity of the Roman Catholic by how many times he bows before the host on the altar and makes the sign of the cross. Certainly gives us something to think about. You know, how do people understand this? We need to understand what we're doing in a right way and not in the wrong way. It says in paragraph 1383, the altar around which the church is gathered in the celebration of the Eucharist represents the two aspects of the same mystery, the altar, the sacrifice, and the table of the Lord. This is all the more so since the Christian altar is a symbol of Christ himself present in the midst of the assembly of his faithful, both as the victim offered for our reconciliation and as food from heaven who is giving himself to us. For what is the altar of Christ, if not the image of the body of Christ, as St. Ambrose? He says elsewhere, the altar represents the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is on the altar. The Council of Trent took place from you know, we always think of council as one meeting, but this lasted for years. Uh, 1545 to 1563. It's still the official doctrine of the Roman Church today. It not only presents the Roman Catholic doctrine, but it also presents canons, which condemn those who do not accept the Roman Catholic teaching. For example, on justification. Uh, and, of course, this comes shortly after the Augsburg Confession and uh, a true confession concerning the fact that we are justified through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, if anyone shall say that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the righteousness of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Ghost, which we would call, or they call, infused grace, and is inherent in them, or even that the grace by which we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. So just so you know, according to the Roman church, we are damned to hell because what they said they condemn is what we believe and teach and what the Bible teaches. Or Canon 12, if anyone shall say that justifying faith is nothing else or not else but confidence in the divine mercy which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that it is this confidence alone by which we are justified, let him be anathema. So again, we're damned on the point of justification. But coming back to the sacraments, if anyone shall say, this is Canon 1, the 13th session, 1551, if anyone shall deny that in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist are verily, really, and substantially contained the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and consequently the whole Christ, but shall say that he is only therein as a sign or a figure or virtue, let him be anathema. There went all the Reformed uh, and their view of Christ, they're condemned. However, uh, they have one for us too. Canon number two, if anyone shall say that in the sacrament and holy, that in the sacred and holy sacrament of the Eucharist, the substance of the bread and wine remains conjointly with the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
and shall deny that wonderful and singular conversion, the whole substance of the bread into the body and the whole substance of the wine into the blood, the species only of the bread and wine remaining, which conversion indeed the Catholic Church most aptly calls transubstantiation, let him be anathema. And so we are counted as damned by the Roman Church for our teaching that bread and wine is present, but that Christ also gives to us in the sacrament his body and blood. And I could go on and on with these, but it may be later and later if I do. Uh, it does speak about uh, condemning those who say you cannot worship and venerate the hosts. Uh, it does speak about the sacrifice that the priest makes. It says, if anyone shall say that it's not lawful for the sacred Eucharist to be reserved in the sacrarium, maybe I'm not pronouncing that right, but hopefully I'm close enough, but that immediately after consecration, it must necessarily be distributed among those at hand or that it is not lawful that it be carried honorably to the sick, let him be anathema. And it also speaks about, you know, anybody who says you can't carry it around in the Corpus Christi procession is anathema. And there are more because in 1562, in the 22nd session of the Council of Trent, if anyone says, the first canon, if anyone says that the mass, that in the mass, a true and, true and real sacrifice is not offered to God or that to be offered is nothing else than that Christ is given to us to eat, let him be anathema. And so if we deny that we are offering a sacrifice, we stand condemned, according to the Roman church. If anyone says that by these words, do this for a commemoration of me, Christ did not institute the apostles priests or did not ordain that they and other priests should offer his own body and blood, let him be anathema. And so if we say that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he did not thereby ordain his apostles to be priests and to ordain other priests to continue to offer the sacrifice of his body and blood on the altar, let him be anathema. If anyone says that the sacrifice of the mass is only one of praise and thanksgiving, or that it's a mere commemoration of the sacrifice consummated on the cross, but not a propitiatory one, or that it profits him only who receives and ought not to be offered for the living of the dead, for sins, punishments, satisfactions, and other necessities, let him be anathema. If anyone says that by the sacrifice of the mass, a blasphemy is cast upon the most holy sacrifice of Christ consummated on the cross, or that the former derogates the latter, let him be anathema. And I'm about to do that in just a little bit so that you know. If anyone says that it's a deception to celebrate masses and honor the saints, let him be anathema. If anyone says that the canon of the mass contains errors and is therefore to be abrogated, let him be anathema. So if we point out the errors here, we're damned. If anyone says the ceremonies, vestments, and outward signs which the Catholic Church uses in the celebration of the mass are incentives to impiety rather than stimulants to piety, let him be anathema. If anyone says the masses in which the priest alone communicates sacramentally are illicit, and are therefore to be 
abrogated, let him be anathema. So if we condemn private masses in which only the priest is there and only the priest takes of the bread and the wine, uh, we're anathema. If anyone says that the right of the Roman church, according to which, which a part of the canon and the words of consecration are pronounced in a low tone, is to be condemned, or that the mass ought to be celebrated in the vernacular tongue only, or that water ought not to be mixed with the wine that is to be offered in the chalice because it's contrary to the institution of Christ, let him be anathema. And I'll stop with the canons because I think you can see quite clearly that both by the Roman Catholic Catechism and the canons of the Council of Trent, Lutherans are anathema. So what is the conclusion regarding the Roman Mass? First of all, it's an illegitimate priesthood. Because Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, did not ordain the apostles to be priests in order to carry out a continual sacrifice on the altar. Nowhere does the Bible say this. It really is an illegitimate altar. And when we speak of the altar, we do not speak of it as a place where we offer up Christ as a sacrifice, but we speak of it as a place where we come to God with the offering of our prayers and praises for what he has done for us in Christ. And all the sacrifices that are offered in the Roman church in the mass are really nothing else but idolatry because they are believing that by saying the words that transubstantiation occurs and that this is offered up to Christ and as the priest breaks the host, he is breaking Christ and then eating Christ and it's offered up to God as a sacrifice for sin. Well, this is nothing but idolatry. It's not the truth. And so it is false doctrine, especially making Christ one sacrifice for sin insufficient for the sins of the world so that we need to bring him down again from heaven each day again and again and again under the forms of bread and wine in order to appease God's wrath against our sins or to free you know, our dead relatives from purgatory because they may not have quite measured up. And of course, all of this usually involves the exchange of money for these masses. So what does the Bible say? Again, I read to you the text I read to you a few minutes ago, Hebrews 7, 26 through 28, for such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh a son who is consecrated forevermore. Hebrews 9, 7 tells us, but unto the second went the high priest alone once every year, talking about the holiest place in the tabernacle, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. But just a little later in that chapter, at verse 11 through 14, we read, 
but Christ become, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your consciences from dead works to serve the living God? Verses 24 through 28 in chapter 9. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they have not ceased to be offered, because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. And we might just remember here that what happened to the temple and sacrifice after Christ's death? It wasn't but about 40 years later that God allowed the Roman armies to come in and totally destroy the city of Jerusalem, to take apart the temple stone by stone, and it has never been rebuilt. In fact, it would cause a, quite a problem if they tried to rebuild it since it's, the site is now used as the Dome of the Rock. Again, it goes on to say, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins thou hast no pleasure. And skipping down a little bit further, it says, He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. And so, in other words, the Levitical priesthood has been taken away, that he may establish the second. By the which will we, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once. It's amazing how many times that word once is in the book of Hebrews. Once forever, or one one sacrifice, wait, once for all. Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had, after he had offered one sacrifices for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he had perfected forever them that are sanctified. And I think you get my point. 
Uh, I could read to you from Romans and 1 Peter and many other, other, other verses in the Bible uh, concerning the one sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ and concerning the errors of the Roman church and the scriptures demand that we come out from among this idolatrous church. And so we, to conclude today, I would like to talk about what is it that we do in the Lord's Supper. We place the elements, bread and wine, as Jesus used on the altar, but we are not bowing to the elements on the altar. We are only bowing in respect to the Lord God. Lutheran pastors still wear vestments, some more than others, maybe some none. However, those vestments are not a part of a priesthood to sacrifice the body and blood of Jesus again and again on an altar. And as I said, the altar itself, though we still use the name altar, is not because we're offering sacrifices of the body and blood of Jesus. It's because we're offering the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to our God for the one sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so we do not offer Christ's body and blood as a sacrifice for sin. We offer at this table, we do not offer at this table an unbloody sacrifice, as they say. In the Lord's Supper, what we partake of is Christ's one sacrifice. We partake of one sacrifice, which he completed 2,000 years ago on a cross just outside of Jerusalem. As God's people partook of the Passover lamb that was sacrificed for them, that its blood might cover them and shield them from God's judgment upon the Egyptians, so we partake of the body and blood of Christ, of the Lamb of God who atoned for the sins of the world, the body and blood of Christ which was shed on the cross, that we might partake in faith of the blessings Christ won for us when he was sacrificed for us once and made full atonement for our sins and the sins of the entire world. As we partake of Christ, of his body and blood, which were given and shed for us, we are also joined together in communion, fellowship, the Greek word is koinonia, with Christ. And when we're joined to Christ, we are also joined together with all others who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is kind of a beautiful thought. That when we come to the Lord's table and we receive, and I might point out, you know, Jesus, Jesus told us in the sacrament, uh, in, in his words of institution, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood. We believe his words. Jesus didn't explain how it happens. And we have continued to argue about that for hundreds of years. He didn't explain how it happens. He didn't say the substance of the bread and wine are changed into the body of Christ. And maybe it's kind of shocking to say, but I have not ever, never found the words in, with, and under in the Bible either, though we do believe that the bread and wine are present and that Jesus gives us to partake of his body and blood. I don't begin to understand how that happens. I just believe that God gives us to partake of the body and blood of Jesus. And through 
what Jesus has done for us in that one sacrifice, all my sins are forgiven and all your sins are forgiven and we have a place in God's kingdom. And when we partake together of the Lord's Supper, we are in communion with Christ. And when we're in communion with Christ, we're in communion with fellowship with God the Father in heaven. We are in fellowship with true believers everywhere who partake of the Lord's Supper. The reason we limit those who come to the Lord's Supper to those who are a part of our fellowship is because we cannot recognize invisible fellowship, and so that's all we have to go on. If one confesses true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and is not rejecting the doctrine of God's word, but holds to the truth, we acknowledge them as a brother, and we receive them at the Lord's table with us. But did you ever think that when you are partaking of the Lord's Supper and in fellowship with God the Father and in fellowship with Jesus Christ, you are also in fellowship with every other believer who has ever lived or will live. You're in communion with them as we will be in communion together with them in heaven. And of course, the Lord's Supper, you know, Jesus said that he's not going to eat, it, eat or drink of it again, the fruit of the vine, until he comes again in his kingdom. And the Lord's Supper not only reminds us of his death, but it also points ahead to that feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, in which we and all other true believers will partake of the eternal blessings which our Lord Jesus Christ won for us on the cross. And again, I don't begin to understand. I don't begin to grasp what that would be like. But we are in communion and fellowship with God the Father, with our Lord Jesus Christ, and with all other true believers, with his whole body. And we continue to partake of that supper till the end of time. You know, we need God's forgiveness which he offers and gives to us in the sacrament. We need the strength to continue to live our life for Christ. But also we are in fellowship and we look forward to the day when Christ changes this vile and sinful body into a glorious and heavenly body and that we are forever in communion with our Lord Jesus Christ. God grant that we not fall into error here or into idolatry, such as in the Roman church and maybe also in other churches, but that we hold fast to Christ and the true teaching of his word, that we believe as Hebrews teaches that Jesus was offered once and that sacrifice was sufficient for the sins of the entire world, that when we trust in that Christ and his sacrifice, we have forgiveness and life. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, Remember that we are joining together in communion with our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us and rose again. We're partaking of his sacrifice. We have the blessings of his sacrifice and we have fellowship with the Holy Christian Church, with all believers in Christ. God granted for Jesus' sake. Amen. I ask you to please stand.
The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds through faith or through Christ Jesus. Continue our worship by bringing forward our offerings. to please stand for the prayers of the church. Be merciful unto us, Heavenly Father, for daily we are tempted by Satan, and daily we sin and transgress your will. For the sake of Christ Jesus and his bitter suffering and death upon the cross, forgive us. Lord, in your mercy. Righteous God, as you have marked Cain and gave him your protection despite his sin, we thank you that you have marked us in holy baptism and still protect us from the spiritual harm despite our sin. We praise you for washing away our sins, delivering us when sin and Satan attack us, and renew us in faith and life. Lord, in your mercy. Gracious Lord, you alone are our dwelling place and have given us order, peace, and fellowship with our brothers and sisters in the faith. 
Bless and guide our congregation and pastors. Keep us faithful to the end. Lord, even as you have preserved and strengthened us to this day. Lord, in your mercy. Gracious Father, because you have made us our brother's keeper, fill us with care for the members of our earthly families and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. By your promise and by your son's body and blood, forgive our sins and strengthen us to live so that we owe no one anything except to love each other. Lord, in your mercy. Mighty God, be merciful to our land that those with authority would exercise it with wisdom and righteousness, and that we would have peaceful days. Be merciful to the nations of the world, that wars would cease and harmony be restored. Lord, in your mercy. Heavenly Father, be merciful to the, to the distressed, the sick, and the sorrowing. We remember today, especially Carl and Joyce and Matthew, that as they are burdened by the difficulties and the hardships of life in this fallen world, they would receive not only temporal relief, but know the forgiveness of their sins and have the constant hope of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Lord, in your mercy. Holy Lord, bless this holy assembly and our communion as we partake of Christ's supper, that we might bear in our lives the fruits of your spirit and do the good works for which we were created. Lord, in your mercy. All these things and whatever else you know that we need, grant us, Father, for the sake of him who died once to atone for all our sins and grant eternal salvation to all who believe and who rose again and now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever. You may be seated. We continue our worship by singing hymn 314, Lord Jesus Christ, we humbly pray.
I ask you to please stand. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks unto the Lord our God. It is truly meet, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks unto thee, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty, everlasting God. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify thy glorious name, evermore praising thee and saying, Peace of the Lord be with you always.
Take eat. 
This is the true body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, given into death for all of your sins. And may the Lord bless you and keep you and his baptismal grace. Take also and drink. This is the true blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, poured out for you for the full and free forgiveness of all of your sins. Now I ask you please to stand. May this, the true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen and preserve you in the one true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. Amen.
bless we the Lord. Receive now the benediction of the Lord. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. You may be seated. We close by singing hymn number 50. Lord, dismiss us with thy blessing. Again, a welcome to all of you in the name of our Lord Jesus. The announcements, uh, again, are pretty much the same. Uh, we have our midweek Bible study uh, in the Gospel of Matthew on Wednesday evening, which is online only. And I will send out that Jitsi Meet link again, but it's the same one we've been using for Sunday morning and Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, next congregational meeting and potluck dinner are upon us already next, next Sunday. So uh, plan on that. We have the meeting following the service and then the potluck following the meeting. And then the ladies' second Saturday brunch, uh, 11 a.m. on Saturday, September 10th. Any other announcements this morning?
Sorry to be long-winded this morning, but, well, maybe not. <laughs> I'll try not to do it every Sunday. Okay, sounds good. And we do have a lawnmower here, and the lawn's been mowed, so twice, I think. God's richest blessings to all of you and your Lord Jesus.